Father, I thank you for bringing me back safely and those with me. I thank you, Father, for the care that this church was in in your hands through the leadership that was here and Toby and others who steered this congregation in my absence. I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you, Father, that we are here as a a body today looking forward to a summer and to great things to come as you've appointed. We thank you, Father, that you would work through the likes of us, men and women who bring nothing of any value to you, who have no intrinsic righteousness or wisdom, but, Father, are simply available in your hands to be molded as you see fit. We thank you, Father, that we could be useful to you as you choose to use us. But part of that development, part of our readiness and service to you, Father, is that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that requires that we study at his feet. And we do that now, Father, with open hearts, open minds, with ears set to hear, knowing that what we'll learn today, Father, are eternal things. Even if in the moment we hear them, they don't please us but convict us, Father, let that be the case, if it necessary, that our hearts would be prepared however you see fit. For, Father, we would far more rather be like you than to be self-satisfied. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, chapter 12 in Matthew. You've heard me say this now from weeks leading into this chapter about how this is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. This is the chapter in his account in which we find the generation of Israel, those who were alive in Jesus' day, losing the opportunity for the kingdom. So by the time we reach the end of this chapter, just to tell you what's coming... Jesus will have withdrawn his offer of the kingdom from the nation of Israel in that day. He'll do so because of their unbelief. And as a result, he'll set forth an ultimatum to this people, giving them a stipulation on what will be required in order for him to return to them. And that sets up a period of history that we'll study more as we get there. But meanwhile, the nation's rejection of Jesus alters his entire approach to ministry. And and Matthew's gospel is so good at showing this And the division is so pronounced that when we get to the end of 12 and enter into 13, you'll see it for yourself. And it's a reflection of the fact that his purpose in ministry shifts dramatically from offering the kingdom to no longer offering it, but rather preparing for his death on the cross. So Matthew really wants to show us that dividing line. And this chapter is where he does that. But before we see all of that, we first need to finish the explanation that Matthew's been giving us now on how and why the nation rejects their Messiah. Back in chapter 11, Matthew gave us the first of those two reasons, the major reasons for his rejection. And that was that the hard hearts of the people of Israel themselves had been committed to pursuing self-righteousness to such a degree that when Jesus came along offering something better, they weren't interested. And now in chapter 12, Matthew has turned to the second major reason. And the second major reason deals with the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And their dispute with Jesus over one particular issue. And you remember from last time I taught, that issue is the Sabbath. The Sabbath day observance. Or, more specifically, it was Christ's refusal to acknowledge the authority of the Pharisees in their endless list of Sabbath rules. So, for that reason, more than any other, the Pharisees conspired to kill Jesus. Now, you and I might hear that and wonder, well, why would the Pharisees be so upset with Jesus over that one particular law? I mean, why that one? Well, you remember I told you, in Jesus' day, and really, even still today, those of us who just came back from Israel will tell you this, they saw it for themselves, the Sabbath observance is a very special thing to the Jewish people. 
It's a law that really sits above all the rest in their way of thinking about it, in their way of seeing it. And the rabbis even called the Sabbath the Queen of Israel. That was their view of the day. And because they were so enamored with it, and with keeping it in all of its various complexities, they gave it special attention in their rule setting. You know, the Mishnah, the rules that the rabbis came up with for how Israel was to live in keeping with the law, those rules, when it came to the Sabbath, had no peer. There were over 1,500 rules in the Mishnah just devoted to Sabbath day observance, which turned that day of rest into a complex maze of regulations that brought nothing but burden and worry to the people of Israel. And because these rules that the rabbis had invented were not Scripture, they were not the Word of God, they didn't have the authority of the Word of God, because of that, Jesus ignored them. In fact, he went a step further than that, as you see in the text. He mocked them by intentionally controverting them, uh, or disobeying them, if you will, because they, they were not rules that he was bound to keep. They were not rules of righteousness God appointed. And he wanted to do all this to make clear to the Pharisees that their rules were not God's rules. They were not equivalent. And in fact, their rules didn't even go along in the spirit of the law. You know, the law was intended to give Israel release from burden, refreshment once a week. Their laws were doing the opposite of that. But the Pharisees, they depended on this system. This system was their power source over the people. So when Jesus comes along and he openly rejects the Sabbath regulations that they've established, they were infuriated and threatened by that. And ultimately, that became the chief reason they went after him to kill him. And Matthew is showing us that here, and you're going to see it again tonight. So that's the background. That's what we've been covering up through end of 11 and into the beginning of 12. We're in 12 verse 9 now. That's where we pick up from when I last taught. So let's start there. Chapter 12, verse 9. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, he will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, when I started this chapter uh, three-odd weeks ago now, I mentioned to you then that Matthew had assembled a couple of, of these moments in which the Sabbath is the issue of dispute. He assembled them among many other examples that we have. The other gospel writers actually give us other examples of Sabbath disputes beyond even just these two. But Matthew gives us these two because these two really do a good job of illustrating two important things. First, how absurd the Pharisees' rules were concerning the Sabbath. But then also, secondly, how determined Jesus was to ignore them, to go right into the face of them, to just to mock them. And our second example really shows that here clearly. You have uh, this particular scene taking place in the Galilee in a synagogue, probably in Capernaum, based on what we know of the context and where this takes place. This last week, while my group was with me in Israel, we stood in this very synagogue, it's still there, and we probably stood in the very place Jesus was when he spoke these words, for what that's worth. And it's kind of a, that's one of the fun things you do when you go to Israel. You get to be in the place, in the space where Jesus was at times. And that, that is a nice moment. It's a very interesting moment. 
And on that particular Saturday, he encounters a man with a withered hand, it says. And based on the, the words in Greek here, the deformity this man had was probably from birth. It's not a, the result of an injury. It's a result of a, of a birth defect. And that type of infirmity was a lot worse than it sounds, certainly to us today. Because in that day, if a man had that kind of infirmity on his hand, his hand is literally unable to be used in the conventional sense. Well, then this man would have been unable to work with his hands. And most men worked with their hands in that day. And so he would have had a virtually useless life when it came to earning a living. He was probably poor, if not destitute. And being unable to work in that day meant poverty, insecurity, stigma. And it meant you depended on charity, which was not something you could find easily. So that's the plight of this man. And for the same reason, his presence in the synagogue on this day is an odd thing. Kind of an unexpected thing, and it's not a coincidence either. Jews often viewed a birth defect of this type as a sign that that person was under a curse from God. You remember there's another moment in the Gospels in which a man is born blind, and they ask Jesus, is he born blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents, right? And we'll get to that later in the Gospels, but the point is, that was the underlying thinking. This, this man is suffering because of some reason, and it's traceable to God, and it must be his fault. And so, given that view, it gave license for them to treat people like this with, with no concern, no care. We, they would ostracize people like this. They would look down upon people like this. They'd mock people like this, because in their minds, it was their own fault. So if this guy is going to have a, a prominent seat in a synagogue, on the very day that Jesus would visit, which is a high, important day. Jesus was obviously a man of some reputation by this point. Well, he didn't get that seat just by luck. He was probably rarely in that building to begin with. So he had to have gained entrance because some powerful people put him there. And sure enough, what we hear from Matthew, of course, and Luke says the same thing in his account, the Pharisees were there with this man, hoping they can use him to catch Jesus in some violation of their Sabbath day rules. It's a trap. Right? So, in Matthew's earlier example of the Sabbath conflict that we studied in the first eight verses, the Pharisees had accused Jesus' disciples of violating their rules about the Sabbath when they went out into the wheat field, right? Well, that didn't exactly work out the way they wanted, as it turns out. So now they've decided to go after Jesus himself. Now, the accusation is not against the disciples. Now it's against Jesus personally. In verse 10, Matthew says the Pharisees asked Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, they're asking him, ostensibly, it looks like they're asking him to render an opinion concerning one of their Sabbath rules. And the rule they had, the rabbinical rule that they had in that day, stipulated that you could not heal on a Sabbath because healing was work. And that's true whether it was a doctor, a physician, or whether it was a miracle worker. It was work. And so... Jesus is being asked concerning that rule, is it valid? Is it a fair interpretation of the Scripture? Is it a fair application of the Scripture? Now, in this moment, you know they are not interested in his answer. They're not truly seeking his opinion on the matter. This isn't the point. It's a trap. We've already figured that out. That what they've done is they've put this sympathetic figure in front of him, right where he would see him, and then raised the issue of healing with this disingenuous question, all the while hoping that Jesus would be moved by what he sees to heal this guy in their presence, and right there, they've got him. He just broke the Sabbath, at least according to their rules, right? And remember, the Sabbath itself in the law sets a penalty for those who would violate it. What's the penalty? Death. Violating the Sabbath was punishable by death. Now, here again, 
Jesus is not at risk here of violating the Sabbath. He's at risk of violating their rules about how to keep the Sabbath. That's not the same thing. And yet they think it is. They treat it as if it's the same thing. So let's take our own look at at the Sabbath rule for a second in Scripture. How does their accusation of Jesus breaking the Sabbath by healing, how does that stack up against Scripture when it does talk about the Sabbath? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It doesn't say anything about healing. There's nothing in the law specifically concerning healing. That is to say, the law doesn't prohibit healing specifically on the Sabbath. It was that oral law, the Mishnah that the Pharisees had written, which had gone that next step and said, oh, well, we believe this is equivalent to work, and therefore it should not be done on the Sabbath. But there was no specific prohibition in the law itself. Friends, there's a general principle for interpreting Scripture and for applying Scripture that would also be true here in the case of the law. When the Word of God is silent concerning a certain matter, we fall back on general principles. We apply general principles of Scripture when there isn't a specific one given. So that's what Jesus does. In his response, he applies a general principle of Scripture. He declines to get into a debate about the merits of their particular law. He just sidesteps that whole trap. And instead, in verses 11 and 12, he uses a very traditional Midrashnic rabbinical method of debate, which is you ask a question to answer a question. Moms are really good at this too, right? Mom, where did I leave my socks? Well, where's the last place you saw them? You know, that's a rabbinical technique. Moms are rabbis right there. (laughs) What he does with his question is he points the Pharisees' attention back to the law, not to their own word now, not to their own law, but to the law, God's law. And in doing so, he asks them to apply a general principle of the law. He asks them, How would you respond if you had an animal, a sheep, that was in distress, that was in need of assistance, that happened to to be on the Sabbath day? What would you do for that animal? And then he answers it because the answer is obvious. Naturally, they would rescue the animal. I mean, mainly out of pity and compassion, maybe out of self-interest. But either way, they'd act. And none of them would think twice about whether they were violating the Sabbath. They would recognize that is a permissible exception. Why is it permissible? Because the law commands compassion no matter when it's necessary. The law puts no limits on compassion. I'll give you one example. And it's actually an example that deals with animals, which is a good one for our situation. In Exodus 23, 2, the Lord commanded Israel this. He says, You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey or of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, You shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Now that's not speaking specifically about what's happening in this moment in the synagogue. But did you see the principle that was being applied there or was being taught through those specific examples? The law was teaching Israel that they should show compassion for the weak at all times. And it was always the right thing to do. Even on a Sabbath, it's the right thing to do. It's even the right thing to do for the sake of an animal. It was even the right thing to do for the sake of your enemy's animal. You see what I'm saying? If you get down to that level, even your enemy's animal needed compassion. Well, friends, if that's the case, surely God's law is concerned with the plight of human beings. 
Then that was Jesus' argument. His argument was, if you can see the law asking us to do these sorts of things for the sake of such minimal need, uh, my enemy's donkey, well, then wouldn't we be expected to apply the same standards for human beings? Yes, of course. But when you look at what the Pharisees did, when the Pharisees turned from the issues of the needs of animals and the like, and they turned to the needs of human beings, they did not get more compassionate. They became less compassionate, generally speaking. They taught that healing on the Sabbath was permitted only in life or death situations. That was the only exception that the Mishnah made for healing. So if you were in a less critical situation, which of course is the situation for this crippled man, well then his healing had to wait at least until the next day. Never mind that that was the day Jesus was there. Never mind he had the power to heal him in that moment. No, I'm sorry, we both need to sit here for 24 more hours until the day changes so that I can heal you. They were more focused on holding people accountable to their little rule system than they were in ministering to the needs of the people of God. So here again, you see an example of a principle that we've learned earlier in Scripture. What was the principle about the Sabbath that we learned a couple weeks ago? We learned that any time keeping... And we're talking here about Israel and their law and their Sabbath, not ours. But in how it works out for them, any time keeping the Sabbath created an unreasonable burden on the people of God, then that Sabbath restriction was set aside. That was the general principle. Because the goal of the Sabbath, as God stated it, was rest. And if keeping that standard produced a greater burden, then it was counterproductive to the goal and you would set it aside. You worked to meet the principle, not merely the letter of the law, especially when the letter of the law took you in opposite directions. That's a, that's a basic principle of Scripture generally all over the place. So Jesus cites that basic principle. In this case, a principle of compassion, or as he calls it in this text, doing good. Doing good. He says doing good is always the right thing to do. It's a defense of his desire to heal this man. So in verse 12, he says showing compassion for an animal on the Sabbath was good, and therefore showing compassion for a person on the Sabbath was better, not worse. And in that case, what you hear him saying is this, making that crippled man wait, even one more day, to have the relief that Jesus was capable of providing right then and there, was not compassionate. It's not compassionate. I mean, put yourself in that man's position. I know you would say, well, it's, it's not like he couldn't survive it. That's not the point. How would you like that to be the way you were ministered to, by the way? You know, your problems doesn't sound that bad. You'll live through it. Come back to me when it's life or death. Or, you know, get over it. Why, why whine about every little thing that happens? As soon as that's the style of ministry that you're confronted with, how do you respond to that? You would look at that person as self-absorbed, insensitive, right? That would have meant this guy has to endure one more day of burden instead of the rest that he had coming to him. And this man deserves at least as much compassion as an animal. And so with that, he tells the guy, stretch out your hand. And as he does, it's restored. What that means is, it goes to a healthy state, to the one equal to what his normal hand was able to do. It's a miracle healing. I would imagine the room just went nuts. You know, the room would have just been in astonishment over this man's a miracle healing. I would love to have seen it, right? You would love to have seen how that actually happened, right? And all the Pharisees can do at that point is slink out the door and think about what they do next. Now, before we move on to what they do and what comes after that, I want to draw your attention to something that's easy to overlook. I want to draw your attention to the faith of that man who was healed. 
Matthew describes this man's hand as withered. And in, in Greek, the word for withered here is literally the word dry in Greek. So it's, it's kind of euphemistic. It's dry, like shriveled up. Dry. In that sense. So again, it's a lifelong condition of something that would have been not just inconvenient for him, but it would have changed his appearance. You know, the hand would have looked abnormal. No doubt that man would have endured cruel jokes as a child, right? Kids do this, unfortunately. And probably even as an adult. So how many times can you imagine that this man may have been taunted by other kids, mocking him, telling him to stretch out his hand? Why can't you get your hand out? Why can't you lift me on? Here, reach out and grab my hand. I mean, who knows what kind of things he was dealing with as a child. Or even as an adult, how many times do you suppose this guy was ridiculed or cursed or you know told that he was under a curse because of his odd appearance so now imagine what was going through this guy's mind in that moment as jesus says stretch out your hand in this very public forum among all these other people you know i wonder if his mind went back to to some of that mocking that he had endured in the past i mean did he start to wonder is this another cruel joke are you going to tell me to do this and then it, you know nothing happens Now, the answer to all that, of course, is no, because the man does as Jesus asks, and we would have to ask them, well, what led him to obey? And the answer we get is obvious, right? He had the faith to believe that if he had obeyed the Lord in that moment, the Lord would be at work responding in mercy and and healing him. You know, it's probably no big guess here to say that he knew of Jesus' healing power. Jesus was renowned for this by this point in in his ministry. So when Jesus issues that call, the man responds in faith, anticipating something good's going to happen. All right, that's easy to say, but the point I'm making is this. That man's healing required a response of faith to that call. Ask yourself this. What would have happened if he had uh, hesitated in that moment? If he had not extended his hand, maybe out of doubt, maybe out of fear... What if he had asked for some assurance beforehand that Jesus was actually going to heal him before he went to the step of doing what was asked of him? What if he had waited to feel something? You know, that would have been very common for us. to, If he says, stretch out your hand, and you're thinking, oh, he's about to heal my hand. I, I'm kind of waiting to see, if, is it feeling better yet? Is it feeling better yet? I don't feel anything yet. I'm waiting. You know, just the nat- natural way in which we look for something that tells us we're not going to be made a fool by doing what someone's asked us to do. Right? I think if that had been his response, he would have missed the miracle. And I say that on the basis of not just this story, but on a second principle of Scripture that you can find evident here in this moment. And the second principle is that the Lord calls everyone, at least at some time, to take a step of faith, which would then require that we trust Him in that command. And if we trust Him and take the step, then and only then do we see where He's actually leading us. That if we answer the call, he delights to reveal himself to us in a new way. And in the process, our walk with him is strengthened. But on the other hand, if we refuse the call, which we can do, we'll just never find out what was waiting for us on the other side of faith. And I think in everyone's life as a Christian, we probably have a little of both of these examples. We have moments that we look back on and we wonder, what if I had done that or obeyed in that call. And then there's those other moments in which we did take a step of faith, and boy, we saw what God can do with that, and we're still talking about it. Right? Let me give you an example of this principle out of the Scriptures, probably the best one. That's when God asked Abraham to take a step of faith, or Abram as he was at the time. Remember Genesis 12.1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land I will show you. 
Now, that sounds so simple. But if you make that more contemporaneous to your own circumstances, this is what he just said. I want you to leave the United States. I want you to break off all contact with all your relatives. I want you to walk away from your inheritance. Okay, great. What for, God? Yeah, we'll get to that later. That's essentially what Abraham was asked to do. Leave the place you know, leave the people you know, leave all your wealth behind. And for what? What's behind door number two? That's a step of faith. He asked him to do that. Now, Abraham did not know Abram at the time. He didn't know where he was going. You know, It doesn't say, I'm going to take you to a land of milk and honey. I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm going to take you to Canaan. I'm going to, you know, here's a picture. It, he gets none of that, right? The only way Abram was ever going to know what was waiting for him and his descendants was if he answered the call to do those three things. If he had waited for the, the rest of the story to be revealed before he made any decisions on the front end, he, he never would have had it. He never would have seen any of it. He first had to answer the call in order to get the rest of the story. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how did he even know which way to go? How did he even know which way to walk? You know, where do you, he says, go. Well, it could have gone north, south, east, west. How did he know where he was going? Well, if you think like that, you're actually missing the point, in a way. Because the Lord isn't asking us to determine the path that we go when he calls us to follow him. He just asks us to take a step of obedience in the one place he asks us to go today or tomorrow. And then as you walk in faith, he will move you along a path. That's just the way God works. And every step of obedience reveals the next step of the plan. That's been my experience. I like to say it this way. God does not steer a stationary object. So if you stay put, you go nowhere. You move... Well, yeah, you might start in the, you know, Abraham, I like to think, started going east first for just lack of, of any specific knowledge. He just said, okay, I'll go this way. And God said, okay, buddy, let's go this way. As long as you're moving, he'll steer you, so to speak. And I think that's been the style of, of, of my, I know that's been the style of my walk with Christ from the time I was saved in my 20s till when I, you know, got up on this stage, right? As I take a step, God shows me the next one. And he's done that in the scriptures over and over and over again. Consider Noah, consider Jacob, Gideon, David, all the others you can probably name in Scripture. They all were asked to do something unreasonable, impossible, and strange. But as they did them, God shows up with the next part of the story. You have Noah asked to build this impossibly large boat before rain had ever fallen on the earth. And he was told he had to do that if he expected to see God's mercy in that flood. What if he had said, well, I'm going to wait and see how bad the rain is before I start building, you know? Not going to work. Jacob was told to leave his family and his land before he knew how the Lord was going to bring him home. Gideon had to enter into a battle with 300 losers, if you know the story, against an army of thousands, and he had to go into the battle before he knew how the Lord was going to grant him victory. And Daniel had to make up his mind to disobey the orders of a powerful king before he knew how the Lord was going to protect him out of that situation. I mean, you just go on and on through the whole Bible. They all have the stories like this. And I, I will tell you, in my own experience, and I think this is a truth in general, every Christian has this in their life too. Because we all have a call, and multiple calls on our life. I'm not talking about some major call of vocation. I'm just talking about what you're going to go do tomorrow. God's always calling you to do something in service to Him. But if you're going to find out what He's planning to do through that call, you have to take the step of obedience, generally, before you get the rest of the story. That's what faith requires. That's what faith means. Now, I'm convinced of this. The call you have, whatever that is in your heart right now, will stay there until you answer it. 
This is another of Steve's corollaries, by the way. That may not be true, but meaning I may be wrong. But in my experience, he'll put a call in your life, and until you answer that call, you don't get call number two. He'll let you sit on call number one for 20 years, if that's what you're determined to do. But as you take a step of faith in that direction, okay, now he'll give you the rest of the story. He's got more patience than you do. Because the next thing for you, the next best thing for you, is that thing he's put on your heart. And if you say no to that, there's no incentive for God to skip to the next one or the next one because they're planned in an order for your benefit. Again, I'm being very mechanical about this, and I know that everybody's situation will vary slightly, but this is what Scripture shows us generally. And so in your case, maybe you have a call of, uh, to walk away from some sinful habit, or a call to begin some new work of service, or a call to support some missionary financially or something. Or maybe the Lord is, is uh, convicting you to become more involved in studying the Bible or in prayer. Maybe prayer needs to be a bigger part of your life, and you felt that, and you just haven't really acted on it yet. Maybe he's calling you to, to do something big, like walk away from your entire life you have now, like he asked Abraham to do, or Jacob, because he's got some new way he wants you to serve him. I don't know what's on your life. I don't need to know. But I can tell you this, in every case, God issues that call, and then he expects us to take a step of faith, and then he gives you the rest of the plan as you go. And if living that kind of life with Jesus, I kind of walk with Christ. If that sounds strange, if that sounds impossible, if that sounds like what you know, weird, wacky Christians on fire for Jesus do, not what normal Christians do, you know, if that's how you see this, let me, let me encourage you tonight to try it. Just try it. Honestly, you will never know the miracles that you are missing if you are unwilling to take these little steps of faith. I have a friend who was a missionary in Kenya. He came out of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a guy who grew up in this, you know, in Missouri. He's just a normal American kid. And when he went off to missionary work, he went where missionaries are supposed to go. He thought, Africa. I mean, he was just literally following the stereotype. He confesses that now, years later. But anyway, when he was in Kenya, he went woefully unprepared. And of course, he had trial after trial after trial. And he, he, he came back with this one insight that I've never forgotten. He said, you'll never see God show up more than when you are completely dependent upon him. And he says, the problem with people living in the West is no one's dependent on God, or so they think. We live in this sort of self-dependent mindset, so much so that we, we, never, we never answer any calls. We're always too busy designing the path we want. And he was, he was just making an observation that he really got to see how God could direct his path when he had no other path. And it was an exciting time in his life, and it kind of changed his, his whole outlook. So let's say God is calling you to do something really basic. Pick an easy one. Spend more time in the Bible. Spend more time in Bible study. But then you say to yourself, well, I don't have time for that. My schedule's pretty packed. Well, maybe the real problem is you don't have enough faith that God can give you the time back. My wife tells a story, and I didn't ask if I should tell this before I decided to do it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, I may need a a ride home later. (laughs) My wife tells a story that when she was um, kind of getting engaged in Bible study early in our marriage, before I was a believer, she uh, found that same challenge with young kids in the home and figuring out when she could find Bible study in her day. And when her plan was to simply do all her chores, take care of the kids, do everything at first, get that out of the way, and then she'd have time for Bible study, she, you know, wouldn't you know it, you never had time for Bible study. By the end of the day, she'd run out of time. And so it convicted her to the point where at some, some 
point in that process, she said, I'm just going to reverse this, Lord. You want me to do Bible study? Fine. I'm going to do my Bible study first, and then you're going to have to find a way to give me back that time so that I can do all this other stuff. And as she tells it, not only did she find time, she had time left over. It was like the loaves and the fishes in terms of time. And, you know, you can't figure that out. The math doesn't work. Somehow God stretches time, but he does it. And I think that's just a beautiful little example of the fact that we find all the reasons why we can't, rather than just take a step and look at all the things God does miraculously to make it possible. So maybe you, maybe that's not your problem. Maybe it's that you don't have the budget to support the missionary, or you don't have the skill to do that work that God's calling you to do, or you don't have the ideas, you don't have the, the will, the discipline. Uh, whatever the thing is that you don't have that is standing in your way of answering that call, it's probably the thing God's working on. And what God is asking you to do is just put that step into action, into, into place, and let Him work out the plan after that. Be encouraged tonight. In fact, let me put it this way. Put the Lord to the test on this one. In the healthy sense of that, right? In the, in the sense of test Him against His own Word. Take a step of faith. Show Him you're serious about obeying Him in some call. And then watch what He does next. That's what walking with the Lord means. Right? Step by step, journey of obedience in response to His call. That's what it means. All right, back to our story as we finish tonight. Jesus uh, has won this one. This next battle, of course. But Matthew says the fight's not over. And just notice how he ends this passage in verse 14. Matthew says, The Pharisees begin to conspire against Jesus, seeking to destroy him. They convened a meeting in which they discuss how they're going to bring Jesus' ministry to an end. Now, Matthew doesn't cover that, but John does. Look what John says about this meeting in John eleven forty-seven. You can just listen to this. He says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now I want you to notice what concerned these guys about Jesus. Were they concerned that Jesus might be a fraud? No. Were they concerned that he was teaching you know, false things? They were, they were going to bring down the people into false religion? No, that wasn't the problem. They were concerned that his claims might actually be true and were so compelling that people would believe them. All right. If it happened that Jesus could rise to the power of king and bring the kingdom into existence, what these guys knew would happen next is the Romans would feel threatened by that kingdom coming on the scene, right? And if the Romans feel threatened, well, that's going to upset their apple cart. There goes the Pharisees' power within the culture. You know, they'd lose their favored position with the Romans. And so in their response, they say, what are we going to do about this guy? And you see in it, the proof of what I've already been telling you about these guys, they were not interested in the truth, they were interested in preserving power. Just pure politics. And therefore, they were willing to take any action, even murder, if that's what was necessary, to hold on to their position. And for that reason, the Pharisees are the Bible's poster children for self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, which blinded them and that entire generation of Israel to their own Messiah. When Paul describes this general problem with the way the leaders looked at Jesus and the way they looked at the gospel, he describes it beautifully in Romans 10. Listen to how Paul describes their self-righteousness. Verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Paul goes on from there to talk about that issue, but you see in that short opening in chapter 10 that Paul, though he had a heart for his countrymen, for his fellow Jew, he says, the problem with my brethren are they have self-righteous hearts. Self-righteousness is standing in the way of their own salvation. The Jewish people in Jesus' day pursued God very earnestly. Talk to any of the folks who just came back from Israel with me, and you'll, they'll tell you that it's still there. This, this, this incredible piety to do what they've been told they're supposed to do to please God within the system of Judaism that exists there today. Sincere desire to please Him. But Paul says that zealousness that he saw and that you can still see today was not accompanied by knowledge. Now the Greek word used for knowledge in that passage means, very specifically, knowledge of the truth as opposed to some other kind of knowledge, like an opinion or uh, some assumption that you make. That's a kind of knowledge, yes, but it's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying the Pharisees were, in fact, very knowledgeable people, but the knowledge that they had accumulated for themselves was not the truth. What were they knowledgeable about? They were experts in their own system of rules, which was nonsense. Do you know people like this, by the way? People in your walk who are the most, the, some of the smartest people you know, and they know tons of stuff about nonsense? They can name baseball quotes on every, you know, or they can tell you about some you know, obscure areas of science or some obscure areas of culture or painting. Or, but who cares? I mean, in other words, it's nice to have some of that knowledge, but for them it's their whole life, and you can't help but look at them and go, man, you spend all your time on that? Well, the Pharisees had done that within their own little world. Their dedication to the system that you've heard me call Pharisaic Judaism, that system made them appear pious. But that righteous appearance was a facade. Paul says they held their beliefs sincerely, but as you've probably heard others say, they were sincerely wrong. And when you are running in the wrong direction, running faster doesn't make it better. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to compete with each other for who could run faster in applying all of these bad rules that got them nowhere. That's what the Israel of Jesus' day was doing. They were running hard in the wrong direction towards self-righteousness, believing that adhering to this rabbinical system of rule-keeping was bringing them closer to God, making them more righteous. And Paul says that once Israel's leaders had fallen in love with that system, they would not subject themselves to God's righteousness. Now you know what that refers to, right? God's righteousness is a reference to the righteousness you receive by faith in Jesus Christ. That as you put your faith in Christ, Him as your Savior, having done the work required, that then you get credit for His righteousness. You receive the righteousness of God credited to you by faith in Christ. That is the third and probably thankfully final principle that I want to address tonight in the text. That is, if you are determined to pursue God the wrong way through self-righteousness, you don't get credit with Him for effort. Do you understand what we're saying? You don't get credit because you were zealous for the wrong thing. Doing things that we prefer in place of answering the call of God in obedience to the gospel is just serving yourself. 
You might assume God is impressed with all of that self-sacrifice, but He sees it for what it really is. It's self-validation. It's self-satisfaction. It's self-righteousness. We're like the Pharisees in that case. We're committed to some religious system. Maybe not theirs. Maybe a different one. Maybe one we invented. But whatever it is, it's one of our own making. And therefore, it is not a relationship rooted in God's Word, which is the only way to receive His righteousness. And let's face it, and I think this is something we all need to acknowledge, there's a seductive quality to pursuing self-righteousness. Self-righteousness appeals to us in some sense because it puts us in the driver's seat. Remember that second principle, you've got to answer God's call before you see the rest of the plan? You know, we don't really like that very much. But if I have my own system and I know how the whole thing works and I can see the end from the beginning, well, then I'm in the driver's seat on day one and I can just walk my own plan and I'm not having to wait for someone to tell me anything else. Self-righteousness gives us that control. We like that. But more than even that, when we make our system difficult and then we rise to the challenge that we created for ourselves, we feel really good about it, don't we? We feel better about ourselves for having achieved something that we knew was difficult. That's why Pharisaic Judaism kept adding more and more and more rules over all the centuries. Because these were men who found themselves, who judged themselves more worthy because they were working harder. And when someone else came with a new rule, it was like, all right, let's give a try at this one. I'll be that much better. I mean, you see the pride of the human heart on display in that, right? So Jesus comes together, or, or comes along, and he condemns the Pharisees' system rather than congratulating them for all of their piety and hard work. And they were expecting a Messiah to do something very different. If you had asked them beforehand, what will the Messiah say when he comes? They would have told you, oh, he will look at our system of piety and he will congratulate us for our strength of discipline and our effort and our, you know, our, our concern for the law and so on. And that was in their mind. Jesus comes along and says, no, this is nonsense. And now you understand why they rejected him. But true righteousness, friends, comes by faith, understanding the Lord has already done all the work. He offered himself as a spotless, sinless sacrifice for you and for me, giving himself up so that we could gain credit for his sinless life. And let me ask you this. Now that you know Christ has done all the work required that you would be righteous, what more do you think you can contribute to that? I mean, if he's given you perfect righteousness already, how do you make perfection better? Can you? That's why our faith in Christ brings us liberty. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. That's the whole idea of freedom from the law. That is, because he kept the law, so now you receive full credit for him doing the law, you don't have to do the law. Because even if you try to do the law, you can't improve on perfection. All you can do is make it worse. Right? All you can do is subtract. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might receive the righteousness of God in Him. I mean, that's the gospel. We all knew that, right? I hope you did. But keep asking yourself that. Can you do better than perfection? Can you keep more of the law than Jesus did for you? Certainly not. And therefore, can you produce in yourself a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness you've already received from Christ by faith? Once again, no. Then, friends, stop wasting your time trying. That's the message of the gospel. Don't turn your walk with Christ into a pursuit of self-righteousness through works of law. If you allow your heart to be tempted into a pursuit of self-righteousness, thinking that somehow you're you're, you're doing better this way, what you are doing is throwing away the freedom that Christ won for you on the cross. 
Paul says in Colossians 2, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, then why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He's referring here to the laws of the Mosaic law. He says, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. These are matters which, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. I love that last line. What Paul just said is this. Why, if you know you have been raised up with Christ by faith, why do you then go about acting as if you're still in the world and you need to do all these works of righteousness to please God? And then he talks about those works and he says, these are things which, to be sure, they have the appearance of wisdom. They look like the kind of thing people who are religious should do. But then he goes on, he says, but you know the the truth about them? They have no power to deal with the underlying problem, which is the lust of the flesh. Think about the Pharisees most pious guys you would have ever seen in that day and age, and also, not coincidentally, the most sinful. Jesus says they were lovers of money. He says that they were like their father, the devil. John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. Oh, but these are the guys keeping all the rules, right? As believers, you and I need to understand that your righteousness comes from Christ, not from doing works of any kind, not even to improve on what you already have, or to keep it, or to accentuate it, or in any other way to improve your standing with God. That is not proper theology. From the moment of your confession in Christ, you have been made perfect in your spirit, according to Scripture. You still have a sinful body, and you have a battle on your hands until you die, but in terms of your position before Christ, your spirit, the eternal part of you that's going on after your death, that part of you is made perfect from the moment of salvation. That's why you go into heaven when you die, because your spirit is perfect. It can enter into heaven when it separates from the body. That's why Paul couldn't understand why the Galatians submitted themselves to works of flesh again. And I want to ask you, are you walking that way with Christ now? Do you think God is more pleased with you because you take on burdens? Because you do pious things? Maybe you try to keep a Sabbath. Or maybe you observe certain other works of the law, festivals, feasts, giving certain amounts. Maybe you do all of this because of some personal conviction. And if so, okay, that's fine. Convictions should be followed. But make sure that's the truth. Make sure you're not observing them, thinking that you're somehow making yourself more pleasing to God or that you're getting a little more righteous than your neighbor. And you want to know the, the, the simple test that you can apply to find out which is true in your heart? Ask yourself this. Do you ever look down your nose at other Christians who aren't keeping the same rules that you do? If that's somewhere in your heart, that's your first clue that you're working in a heart of self-righteousness. Because if you understand that we're all equally saved and equally righteous by faith, then you'll stop comparing yourself to other people based on what you do. We don't want to rest in our works of piety, even if those works come right out of the Bible. We want to rest in Christ's work knowing that we have nothing whatsoever to offer in addition to it. And that means... That when I say we are here to help believers grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you hear us use that statement here, what we mean is helping people learn how to move away from works of self-righteousness and toward a greater reliance on Christ's work so that we answer His call and not serve our own. That's what that means. We want to apply these three principles that we just looked at tonight. We want to find ways to relieve burdens and increase compassion, not enforce rule-keeping. 
Secondly, we want to encourage steps of faith within the body in an answer to God's call so that we would all experience more of God's grace in our life as He walks with us in that, right? And then finally, we want to put aside any pursuit of self-righteousness that might impede that walk of faith. That's what we're here to do. I mean, if we do those three things and do them well, the sky's the limit on what God can do with a group of people who are working like that. And I assure you, we'll attract more because that's a message that a lot of Christians would love to hear. As you heard our worship pastor say tonight, he calls people who are ready to get rid of burdens and take up the light yoke that he offers in grace. Let's help people do that. Let's grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, friends, by the way, it looks radical. And to some, it's a threat. But to many others, it's the joy that they've been looking for. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for giving me stamina, Father, through a night following a long trip. Thank you, Father, that you brought ears to hear and hearts to obey. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to know these things before we see you face to face so that we may obey you now while there is still opportunity to please. Thank you, Father, for a church that wants to hear and share these things. Let us be in a position to do that this week, Father. With family on the weekend or with work and other demands coming up, we ask, Father, that you put us in a position where perhaps a conversation might, might start around us. Someone might ask us a question and it would lead us into an opportunity to testify to the grace of, that you offer in Jesus Christ alone, to the opportunity to walk by faith alone, to serve you in that, in joy, and to be freed from the burdens of self-righteousness, Father. We pray for that opportunity. Show it to us. Give us a call. And we'll take our step of faith, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.